Welcome into The Harvest. I'm Andrew Stroud. The church in modern America is in crisis. From scandals and the moral failures of prominent leaders, to confusion among its members about basic Christian doctrines, to the loss of its influence in the broader culture, the decline of the church is something we can feel. All trend lines seem to be pointing in the wrong direction. And the numbers bear this out. More people are less interested in the church's programs and activities. The church is not only losing ground, it's aging out. If you were born after 1984, there is less than a 10% chance that you're in a church today. What's gone wrong and what do we need to do about it? I'm joined today by Brad Briscoe to talk about five shifts the church in modern America needs to make, not just so we can be more effective in our culture, but in order to be more faithful to our calling. Brad works with the North American Mission Board and holds a doctorate in missional ecclesiology. He blogs regularly at missionalchurchnetwork.com and is co-author of Missional Essentials, a 12-week small group study guide, as well as several books on the missional nature of the church that I'll provide links to in the show notes. I really appreciated Brad's insights. This is a fascinating conversation that can help us be more faithful in the way we live as God's people in our generation. All right, well, Brad, welcome onto the show. I really appreciate you making the time to be with us today. Yeah, you bet, Andrew. Good to be with you. I thought we would jump right in. I wanted to ask you, what is a missiologist? What is it that that you specialize in? Well, I think it just very practically speaking, what I like to do is try to help the church in North America uh, understand it's that it's a missionary entity and then try to figure out what what does it look like for the church to really engage the culture. So it involves understanding cultural shifts that are taking place in a context. And then what I would say, uh, recapturing the missionary nature of the church. So it's really helping the church understand it's place what sometimes I'll say between the gospel and culture and how can we best bring um, really the gospel of the kingdom into very unique cultural contexts. Yeah, that's great. So it, it sounds if I were to try to put that in my own words, I would say that you're, you're really trying to help the church um, become fluent, not just in understanding the gospel and what it is to be a disciple, but then how to translate that so that we can live and communicate it in the real world and in our modern world that um, that the Lord has has planted us in. That's right. And and I yeah, I think that's excellent, Andrew. And and the only thing I would add is that in a in a modern world that is rapidly changing, there's constantly there's shifts and and you know in all of our contexts are very diverse and, and unique as well. So we need to understand the the unique diversity of uh, each of the places where God has sent us. Yeah. One of our slogans is to help God's people live the ancient faith in modern times. And that rapid shift that, that you're talking about there, I do think it's one of the greatest challenges that we face the, just the rate of change in our culture and, and even in just our daily lives with technology. Um, it's, uh, it's hard because you're in the middle of it. It's hard to appreciate just how different, um, it is today. And I think especially for the younger generation, I've got my children are between the ages of 15 and 25. I've got four kids. And this in some ways, this is the only reality they've ever known. But for for people like you and I, we can remember a time where life, the rate of change wasn't so 
drastic. Um, and I think for a lot of God's people, especially if they are, you know, beyond the age of 35, there can be a sense of disorientation of what happened. Uh, what, what should it look like to, to engage the culture today? Because it is so different today than it was even in the nineties. The and I would say even in the early two thousands. Yeah, for sure. I, in fact, I think I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty different than it was even two years ago. I mean, because of COVID and the implications of that. And uh, yeah, I just think we are living in a rapidly increasing missionary context. And like you said, unfortunately, a lot of people, if, if, uh, if they've been a Christian for a long time and kind of been church for a long time, it's just real easy uh, to miss that. And, and I think I'll jokingly say sometimes if you don't believe that the culture is radically different than it was even five or 10 years ago, I'll jokingly say you just need to get out more. Because it, it really is. It's we live in a very different context. And uh, the sooner we we believe that and understand that, the better uh, job we can do to en engaging the, those different unique contexts. Well, I came across you on Twitter and I've enjoyed learning from you, you know, on that platform. Um, again, appreciate you coming on the show today so that we can take a deeper dive. But one of the threads that you put together this was actually several months back. So we were joking a little bit before we started recording that um, you needed to go back and just kind of refresh. Well, what was that? But you were writing on the state of the church today and you had five shifts. Well, I, I would call them shifts, but there were five aspects that you believe the church and we as believers, when I say the church, it's not just some, some, um, faceless entity, but, but we as believers, these are five shifts that, that we need to consider and work towards so that we can more faithfully live the faith and engage the culture. So we're going to dive into those here in just a little bit, but maybe before we get into the heart of our conversation, you can share with our listeners just a little bit about your own faith journey. What's what God has done in your life to, to bring you to himself and, and a little bit about your current work with uh, the North American mission board. Yeah, so I didn't become a believer till a little later in life. I was almost 30 years old. My my brother and I were in the restaurant business together for 13 years. And it, it was in the midst of that that we both became Christians, eventually sold our business, went to seminary, thought I wanted to be a, a professor. And I do like teaching and, and I still do that a, a, a good bit. Um, but early on, I got involved in church planning. We planted a church. Uh, led that for for five or six years, and then uh, eventually got involved. And I've, I've worked for the North American Mission Board now for uh, over 20 years, probably close to 23 years. And in most of that time, I was what's called a church planning catalyst, which means I just helped to recruit and train and resource and coach church planters. But then about five years ago, I took a new role with the North American Mission Board that we just called Director of Bivocational Church Planning. So I work with bivocational and uh, language I use sometimes, co-vocational church planters that, uh, you know, have a, a calling in the marketplace. And at the same time, they feel like uh, God's calling them to start a church. So hmm. work with those types of planters all across Canada and, and all, all across the United States. And like I said, that's been my primary focus for the last five years. Um, in addition to that, I've, I've worked uh, also on a strictly volunteer basis. I work for another organization that's called Forge America. And Forge is a mission training agency that was started in Australia about 30 years ago. And uh, there was a group of people that started what's called Forge America about a decade ago. And the primary role there is really working with existing congregations. So where my day job is primarily working with church planters, my work with Forge is working with existing congregations and just helping them 
just think really well about what does it look like to it really activate all the people of God inside the church to engage in God's mission outside the church. So um, really enjoyed doing that a lot. I did a, a doctoral project and it was on that. It was really on helping existing congregations engage in God's mission more fully. So I enjoy both of that, uh, both those arenas, I guess, church planting, but also work with existing churches. Yeah, well, maybe I'm just curious. This isn't the, the the heart of what we're going to be discussing, but do you have off the top of your head some of the unique challenges that exist in both those different um, settings? You know, w- when it comes to church planting, where you're starting something new and that's that's not in the traditional structure of church, versus helping existing churches recalibrate and and be more faithfully engaged in the mission. What are some of the challenges that you see in both? Well, the challenges are probably uh, similar. I'd say with an existing church, uh, it's just really difficult. I mean, I, I think existing congregations, if if they've been around for a long time, and if the you know if most of their membership um, have have been discipled by American evangelicalism, or or if they've been, I'll kind of jokingly say, if they've been church for a very long time, we just have deeply held assumptions about church and mission and ministry that I just think, in some sense, need to be. Um, undone or we need to unlearn and relearn uh, if we're really going to engage in God's mission because we, we're living in a in a missionary context and, and a lot of times those existing churches that they've been around you know 20 30 40 50 years they weren't birthed in a missionary context so they have certain ways of thinking about church and mission that again I think we need to unlearn and relearn and in church planting in many cases it's a similar type of thing I mean we most of the time when people think about church planting they're really thinking about starting a Sunday morning worship service and there was a day that that was okay. And that in a Mm. sense that worked, but I would argue we don't live in that day anymore. So a little Mm. phrase I use with our church planters all the time is I'll say, we need to help church planters think less like a pastor starting a Sunday morning worship service and more like a missionary engaging a context. So we, we need to start with missionary behaviors and activities and we can get to the Sunday morning gathering. I would argue we can't start with the Sunday morning gathering, not in the context where that most of us live. So um, those are similar challenges, a little bit different because one is starting from scratch and one you're, you know, you're trying to bring uh, a congregation along and and really have some paradigm shifts in the way they think about uh, church and mission. Mm-hmm. And the other is really starting from scratch. So they're similar, but uh, I guess a little bit different. Yeah, you know, and when you do think about building a house, I guess this is just something that pops into my head, you know, that, that there are some unique challenges to, you know, if you've got this this older house that people have lived in for a long time, and there, there are certain things that we become attached to about that house, the layout, the way it's structured. And if, if you try to come in and begin to knock out walls and, and put on additions, I mean, it can be a, a pretty big challenge. Um, and I, I suppose it just depends on the specific church as to, as to how difficult that may be to, to change things up in a more traditional established church. Uh, versus, so yeah, no, that, I think that's a good, that's a very good <laughs> analogy that uh, sometimes we have to take it down to the foundation of that of that church, right? And sometimes it's right. easier to start from scratch, mm-hmm. um, but still, if that church planter doesn't have a little bit of a paradigm shift in the way they're trying to reach people, um, it, it's, it still could be a, a, a challenge. But at the same time, I'm encouraged. I mean, there's there's both existing churches and church planters that are thinking differently. They they recognize they need to think more like missionaries and and um, and they're and they're going about it in a, in a new way. 
Yeah, well, let's let's segue from there into this conversation, because, you know, we mentioned how the rate of change in our modern world, and this is affecting everyone. This isn't just affecting us as believers. You know, I think all of us as modern people are uh, struggling and trying to make the shifts that um, culture and technology is is demanding of us. Um, but uh, but not only is that rate of, of change a challenge that we're all facing, the church included, but it, it would seem to both you and I, for sure, and many others that the church is losing ground in the midst of that rapid change and cultural shifting. Uh, the church is falling behind in terms of its place in culture, its relevance. Um, and I just want to read you had actually quoted in this uh, Twitter thread. Um, you had uh, quoted from a gentleman by the name of Alan Roxburgh. He is a missiologist. I'm not familiar with him, but let me just read his quote and, and then you can speak to it. He says, if you were born between 1925 and 1945, there's a 60% chance that you're in a church today. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, there's a 40% chance you're in a church today. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there's a 20% chance that you're in a church today. And if you were born after 1984, there is less than a 10% chance that you're in a church today. And what struck me just reading that, and I, I don't know where he's pulling those stats, but um, you know, just, just listening and hearing those, those stats, what struck, what struck me is that not only are we losing ground overall, but we're becoming the people who are in the church today, we're getting older. So, the, you know, in terms of our demographic uh, makeup as the church here in the West, uh, there are fewer and fewer long, uh, young people who are involved in the church, coming to faith and passionate about following Jesus. So it's almost like um, a double whammy <laughs> because we're, we're losing ground and we're, we're losing ground especially with the younger generation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, again, I just think we ha part of the, the conversation is we have to recognize that there's an issue that that, that and I, I'm not I'm, I'm usually a very optimistic person and, I, and I'm still optimistic uh, about the, the future of the church. But the reality is in the West, the church is in crisis. I mean, I, I think I shared this in that Twitter thread that every indicator to judge church health or church growth is trending in the wrong direction. It doesn't matter what you look at. If you look at conversions mm -hmm. or baptisms, membership, participation, uh, financial giving, biblical literacy, impact on the culture, any indicator you can highlight, they're all going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So there is a crisis, I would say, both inside and outside the church. And the bottom line is that more, uh, another way I like to say it is more and more people are less and less interested in the programs and activities of the church. Mm -hmm. They just are. At, at best, uh, people outside the church are skeptical at the church. And at worst, they're hostile towards the church. So they're... Mm -hmm. We just need a complete recalibration of the way we think about church and mission if we're going to engage this, as I said earlier, a rapidly increasing missionary context. We just live in a very different context than we did even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. So that's kind of what motivated because this is the conversation I have with existing churches, you know, existing churches. Are, we, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches that close their doors every single year and die. And uh, some of them probably need to die because they they just don't know how to connect to their current culture. 
or current context. And a lot of times what happens is a church plant that does have a little different vision about trying to reach that context will come in and, you know, use the facilities and that's all great. Mm -hmm. But until a church begins to seriously grapple with those cultural changes, I like to say they're just incapable of making the necessary changes. Because otherwise what we do is we think if we just tweak something, like if we get a new church name or a new church sign or a different worship leader or a new preacher, that somehow the church will be okay. And I'll just say, no, the, the change is so has been so deep and so rapid that tweaks just won't get it done, that we need to go more to the foundation and we need to have a paradigm shift in several different areas. Mm. Uh, and that's really what prompted that the thread that you saw, Andrew, a few months ago. It's I was really at that point, I was really speaking to existing churches primarily. It's like, well, what are some of those practical steps that we need to take if we're really going to engage in God's mission? Yeah, I think that's um, that's so true. And it's almost like, um, you know, we talk about the gospel, the good news, but, you know, the, the, the good news doesn't really capture us until we've understood the the severity of the bad news that we that we really need help. And, you know, not that that what we're going to talk about today is 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 the gospel. But in a similar way, if we as the church don't deal with the reality of what's happening in, in our own practices and our own living out of the faith and what's happening in the culture, then yeah, the, the, the minor adjustments that we might want to make is kind of, you know, like, like they talk about it, it's, it's, it's moving the chairs around on the Titanic. It's, it's not really going to address the, uh, the challenges that we face. And I think we're, we're dealing with foundational challenges. And so there's that verse in Psalm 11 that says, you know, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I, you know, I was reflecting a few months ago on that, on that verse and that question, and especially in the context of, of culture and the church. And I think the answer is rebuild the foundations. I think that's all you can do is like, we're going to have to go back to what the church is truly all about. Uh, We're going to go back to the new Testament and see, you know, what were these believers doing Uh, because they didn't have the history and, and the, the, the bonus, you might say, of of living in an inherited culture that was friendly to, um, you know, Christendom wasn't a thing. But many of uh, many of us, especially, I would say, people our age. Um, by the way, how how old how old are you? I think you. I think you. I think <laughs> I heard you say our age, Andrew. Um, I'll be sixty two this year. So yeah. I'm probably old enough to be your father, but <laughs> no, no, I'll be 50 this year. So, okay, I, all right. I, well, uh, but I think I'd seen you publicly say your age. I was like, wow, this guy looks great for his age. Um, <laughs> so um, I actually have uh, I actually have a, a child that's younger than what you have. So I don't know that some days I, I think it keeps me younger and other days. Keep you young. What, what were we thinking? So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it'll keep you young. And I think it'll also keep you connected to what's going on in, in culture right. today. But that oh, was please. kind of my point. If you're yeah. a little bit later in life and not even not even old. let's be honest, we're not old. But even if you are someone who can remember the 80s, you know, even though at the time people probably people in the church probably felt like, oh, we're losing the culture. Um, Looking back now, I can see that what we had a lot of benefits, you know, something like the moral majority as a political movement would have no foothold in culture today. Like you said, people are either skeptical or hostile to organized faith and especially to organized Christianity uh, here in the West. So 
Yeah, we've got some real challenges. And I think we have to go back to the foundations, which is really what these five shifts that um, that you were highlighting are about. So let's let's dive into those. Um, and I'm just going to kind of read them from your your thread and then we can kind of share a little bit or talk talk through each one in turn. So the first one that you mentioned is is that we need to recapture the missionary sent nature of the church. So talk a little bit more about what you mean by recapturing that and, and how we might go about doing it. Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually, so in the thread, I mentioned these five shifts. I actually think there are as many as 10 or 11 or 12 of these paradigm shifts. I think the church needs to experience, but anytime I have the opportunity to talk about any of these paradigm shifts, if I only have time to talk about one, it's this one, it's recapturing the missionary nature of the church. I think this is the most foundational um, paradigm shift of, of all. And, and, and in fact, I think all the other paradigm shifts in a sense uh, flow out of this one. So now most of the time when I talk about this, I'll, I'll actually say there, there's kind of like a, a part one and a part two um, of this first paradigm shift. It's really about the missionary recapturing the missionary nature of God and recapturing the missionary nature of the church. Now, I'm going to boil this down because normally just this first paradigm shift, um, I, I could take like an hour session and just unpack this. But what this is really about it, there's two different ways to recapture the missionary nature of God. One is to re-examine the grand narrative of Scripture. So if we go back and look at the overarching story of Scripture, it's all about God's mission. And, mm -hmm. and I'll say often that it's just it's real easy to kind of forget that, because when we teach and preach Scripture, we're usually preaching on a particular Bible or I mean a, a particular book or a particular chapter or sometimes even a particular verse or two. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But when we do that, sometimes it's easy to forget that the overarching story or what what some people call the meta narrative is all about God's redemptive purposes. It's all about God redeeming and reconciling all of creation back to himself. So that's one way to be just be reminded that God is a missionary God. But a second way that's a little more concrete or a little more practical is to examine what I call the sending language in scripture. There's this amazing, beautiful theme in scripture from Genesis to Revelation, where God is constantly calling men and women out and sending them to participate in his redemptive purposes. So I wish we had time. I could give you examples of this. I mean, there's a Hebrew, I'll give you an example in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew verb in the Old Testament uh, that we translate to send. It's used 800 times in the Old Testament and 200 of those 800 times it's used with God as the subject. In other words, it's God who commissions and it's God who sins. Mm -hmm. So it's it's throughout all the historical books of the Old Testament, even the poetic books of the Old Testament. But it's especially prominent in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So, again, just get this. God is constantly calling men and women and he's sending them. Well, if you move into the New Testament, you see it in all the Gospels. You see it in the book of Acts. You see it in all of Paul's epistles. But let me give you one example in New Testament, and then let's talk about the, how this relates to the church. The best example in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John. So think about it like this. The Gospel of John opens with the incarnation, John chapter three, verse 16 and 17, which I would call that's the ultimate sending. You know, God, the father takes on human flesh and sends the son. And then the gospel of John closes with John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, just as the father has sent me, now I'm sending you. 
Well, in between those two verses in the Gospel of John, nearly 40 times, Jesus refers to himself as the one sent by the Father. So here's what we see in the, in the, in the Gospels. We see God the Father sending the Son, God the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, and then God the Father and the Son and the Spirit sending the church. Well, here's why that's important. Here's why it's important to, to just be reminded that God's a missionary God by looking at the grand narrative. This is why it's important to, to see the sending language in scripture. Here's the way I would say it is that God, the, the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. See, if God is a missionary God and he is, then we as his people are missionary people. Well, here's why this is a huge paradigm shift, is I would argue that the vast majority of people in the church, they don't understand the church that way. They don't mm -hmm. understand that the church is a, a sent missionary entity, and they don't, they don't see themselves as a missionary. So see, this first paradigm shift, I think is it's kind of two part. There, there's two paradigm shifts here. First, we need to recapture the missionary nature of the body of Christ as the corporate body that, that the church, again, the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. So there's a paradigm shift corporately, but then I would argue there needs to be a paradigm shift individually because the vast majority of people do not see themselves as missionaries. They don't see themselves as a sent person. So I think the, the reason this is so foundational is it, it it will change everything. I mean, when we begin to see ourselves as a sent missionary person and we begin to see the church as a sent missionary people, it changes the way we think about the places where we live. It changes the way we think about discipleship and evangelism. It changes the way we think about church leadership. It changes it changes the, the way we think about our gathered times. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it absolutely influences and changes everything. So the very first paradigm shift and the first shift that I shared in that Twitter uh, thread was that, that the church in North America, we have to recapture the missionary nature or essence of the church. Yeah, man, I appreciate everything you said. And I can see that we could actually talk for the rest of our time on this first point. <laughs> I think it's great because it really gets into our sense of identity and um, our mindset. So like who, who we understand ourselves to be and then how we're thinking about ourselves and life as we go about our daily activities. And of course, as we go about gathering as believers, um, I love what you're saying about trying to capture that that meta narrative. And it is very easy for us to to miss the forest for the trees, especially when we're so zoomed in on different uh, passages or even individual doctrines of the faith. We can kind of miss that big that big picture. I'm really uh, excited that you brought up John. That's um, I, uh, I once had the Gospel of John memorized where I could recite it uh, from start to finish. Um, but I share that because it took me about a year to memorize the gospel. And then several years later, I decided I was just going to read it in one sitting. And so I sat down and I read through John from from one through 21. And that's what hit me is over. I think I counted 42 times where Jesus, who was Jesus? He was the one who was sent. That That's the number one way that he presented himself in the gospel of John to to his disciples, to the crowds um, to his opponents that, that that's that's how he understood himself to be. That's how he described himself. And so um, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly that we can miss it if we don't learn how to kind of capture that that bigger picture. And then secondly, it does seem like that's how Jesus 
presented himself. And like you said, he finishes by saying, like you said, just as the father sent me, I'm now sending you. So having that, that uh, identity within ourselves, we've got a resource. And at the end, I'll let you share some resources as well. As well. I know you've written several books that folks might want to check out. I'm sure you have other uh, online resources, but we've got one that's called the foundation series. And that's really the, the purpose of that is to, to capture what is that grand story that we see from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, that's at our website. So we'll put a link on that as well. But, but we probably ought to move on. And uh, I think your second shift that you described really dovetails really well or flows out of this first one. And that is that we need to activate all the people of God to engage in the mission of Jesus in their local context. So this, this seems to me like um, one, who's going to be involved, who's going to see themselves as being sent, and then where and how are they going to live out that, uh, that sent uh, mission? Yeah. So, you know, for, for some networks or denominations, we, we might use the language of the priesthood of all believers. And, and we, we like to say we believe that, but a lot of times the church in North America, we don't really engage in that. Cause if we really believe in the priesthood of all believers, then we would activate all the people of God and not just some. So I think, man, there's lots of different implications and applications to, to this second shift. But a couple of things I would say is I think uh, foundationally where we need to start is we need to at least diminish and in some ways blow up a couple of divides. So one mm. of them is what I call the sacred secular divide. So and where the sacred secular divide rears its ugly head, the worst, I think, is the way we understand vocation. So in other words, uh, unfortunately, we think that there are some vocations or callings that are sacred and other callings or vocations are secular. And I don't think that's helpful. And, it, and I don't think it's biblical that, in other words, we need to help people understand that regardless of what God's called them to do in the marketplace, they're in full-time ministry and we need to help them see how does their calling or job or work vocation in the marketplace, how does it contribute to and participate in the mission of God? So that's one place we need to start is we need to help people understand their vocation and how it fits into mission that when they leave the, the house on Monday morning, they don't somehow leave God behind, but they're entering into the mission field. So that's one of the divides. Another divide I think we need to diminish or completely blow up is what's called the clergy lady divide that we need to get away from professionalizing mission and ministry, that somehow just the professionals, you know, it's, it's back to this first shift. I said that I think there's a, a corporate paradigm shift and an individual paradigm shift. And the way you can illustrate the individual paradigm shift is just ask people what comes to mind when they hear the word missionary. And most people will say, oh, it's the paid professional. It's the trained professional that we send to far off places or for foreign fields. They don't see themselves as a sent missionary person. Now, if we had time, I think we could even talk about that language of missionary, that I think the word missionary has some baggage. And in mm -hmm. fact, I'll say I'll, I think that needs to be kind of like in-house language. But what I, I want people to understand is that they're a sent person that they live where they live for a purpose. They work where they work for a purpose. They hang out in the social spaces. They hang out for a purpose. God has sent them there. And, and when you begin to, to recognize that, then we begin to take responsibility for those places that God has sent us. We start to take responsibility for our neighborhoods and our workplaces and social spaces. So, but that only happens is if we diminish this clergy lady divide. And, and we deprofessionalize mission and ministry. And we help people see that all of us, we're all saints have been called to the work of ministry. So 
Yeah, that whole activation, all the people of God, as you said, Andrew, it flows directly out of recapturing the missionary nature of the church. When we see ourselves as the church, the body of Christ, then we see that we have been sent to participate in Jesus's mission in those places. So and you said, you know, that's a little bit of the why, the how. Um, there's lots of different ways you can frame this, but one of my favorite ways to frame like missionary behaviors and activities is around what's, uh, there was a sociologist that wrote a book. Now I wouldn't, I love this book. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everybody, but it's a book that was written probably 35 years ago by a sociologist. His name was Ray Oldenburg. And he wrote a book called the great good place. And the reason I like the book is it's all about third places. And third places are just um, places of common ground or neutrality where people used to go and hang out. But the reason I bring the book up is that Oldenburg coined this phrase in the book. And I remember reading this 30 years ago and thinking, oh, my goodness, that would be a great way to frame what it looks like to live out a missionary lifestyle. And here's a phrase that he coined. He talks about our first, second and third places. So from a sociological perspective, when he talks about those places, here's what he means. The first place is where you live. It's your home. Second place is where you work. And third place are these third places, these hangouts, the places of common ground or neutrality. Well, I think that's a really helpful way to think about missionality or living out a missionary lifestyle is think about which of those places. And it might be all three. But for most people, there's one of those that kind of come to the surface but which of those three places do you feel like God has sent you to today where you're you're to engage people relationally? Is it your your neighborhood or your home where you live? Is it your workplace or is it social spaces? Is it the the cafe or the pub or the 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 coffee shop, the beauty parlor, barbershop, the place, the the social spaces you inhabit? I just think that's a really good place when we activate all the people of God to engage in mission, we're talking about helping engage in God's mission outside the walls of the church. And I think the best place to help them think where are those places is for them to think about where they live, where they work and where they hang out or play. So that's a little bit around uh, that that second shift of activating all the people of God. Yeah. And I, I assume that in that that third place, the those those social spaces that could include things like. Um, if you're very active in a gym or, you know, if you're part of a mom's group, uh, that isn't necessarily tied to your church. Um, so those, those social communities that you might be already engaged in, um, are, are part of the, that third place. So it's not just a physical space, like, like a coffee shop or, uh, but it could be a, a network that, that you're already involved with that that you may discern that, Hey, this is, this is the, the one that the, the Lord wants me to especially focus on living out mission as, as one of his sent ones. Um, I want to keep us moving. Cause I know you've got a, a hard stop, but did I hear you right? That you would encourage people to, and these weren't your words, but even rank order those that, Hey, um, one of these needs to be where I'm really committed to investing in over yeah, and I against so. the other. Right. I just think because uh, whenever I talk about first, second, third places, uh, inevitably someone will say, well, I don't really 
have opportunities at work, or they might mm-hmm. say, I, I live in a rural setting and, and I can't even see my neighbor, you know? So it's like, well, it doesn't have to be all of those pick one. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah. where's the one where you see God is actively involved right now. And, and it, it, everyone can do that and say, Oh yeah, I go to this coffee shop. Or like you said, I'm a part, I coach my kid's soccer team and man, I've got all kinds of relational connections there. So that's that kind of atypical third place. So yes, I think the start pick, which of those three kind of comes to the service and start there. That's good. I think that's very helpful, like actionable advice. Well, your third shift that you mentioned in this uh, Twitter thread was that we need to start new, smaller, simpler, agile expressions of church that are organized around mission. So you, you give four uh, adjectives there, new, smaller, simpler, agile expressions of church. So what do you mean by that? Well, I just think we need fresh expressions of church that in most cases are going to be smaller. If we're going to activate all the people of God to engage in mission, we need to mobilize them, equip them uh, to start something. And unfortunately, when we use the language of, of church or church planter, we just think about a Sunday morning worship service where somebody stands up and they preach and, and you have a worship experience. I think if we're going to really get into the nooks and crannies of our context, we're going to have to start smaller expressions of church. But I do think when we do that, we need to really think really well about the organizing principle of that smaller expression of church. And I think the organizing principle needs to be mission. It needs to be God's redemptive purposes. So that's why I said organized around mission. And I don't care what language you use, if it's missional community or microchurch or, you know, people use different language. And I don't think the language is important. I think what's important is that we start with mission. And when I use the language of mission, I'm using it in a broad sense. It involves lots of things like evangelism, but I don't simply start with evangelism. I start with a broader understanding of mission where we're participating in what God's already doing. Um, And that's why I think, you know, one of the reasons we moved, uh, I mentioned when, before we got started, Andrew, I live in the Tampa St. Pete uh, uh, area on the Gulf side of Florida. We moved here about four years ago. And one of the reasons we moved here is there's a church here called the, the Tampa underground. And I just wanted to be in a better position to tell the underground story back into the tribe that I work for, the denomination that I work for. And the underground, if you're not familiar with it, I think it's the best example or picture of what I would call a decentralized network of microchurches. So there's hundreds of microchurches all over the Tampa Bay area that are these smaller smaller expressions of church, but every single microchurch uh, they exist around a, a particular mission, a geographical mission, or it might be uh, an initiative or a cause or or some some um, some issue of brokenness in the city. And this microchurch has been formed around. There's been community formed around that particular mission. So that's mm-hmm. what I mean by that. I just think they need to be. In most cases, they're going to be smaller expressions of church you know, made up of, of 20, 30, 40, 50 people. And we're going right. to be moving away from this idea that, you know, of, of launching large with 500 people and seeing a church grow to a thousand in the first year. And again, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I just think in a missionary context, we have to think more about activating all the people of God to start smaller expressions of church. Man, that's great. And again, we'll try to I'll try to link all of these resources. I'm sure that the underground uh, I've come across them on social media as well. But we'll try to link um, where folks can check out more and and learn about their work. Uh, I think this is where we get back to the foundations. And one of the foundations that we need to have is is mission 
but another one is church, you know, ecclesiology. What, what is the church and what does it mean to be the church together? Um, if we're going to have those, those micro expressions, then we want them to be true versions of what the church is. And I think there's a, there's a lot of confusion around that in, in, in the church today, a lot of uncertainty, you, you know, you go all the way from people who say that, well, you have to have, um, you have to be elder led, you have to have certain, you know, uh, marks, uh, to people who say, Hey, if you have three believers hanging out, you have the church and it's like, okay, no, it's somewhere in between those. Uh, but it's important that we, that we learn what the church is so that we can start those smaller, but faithful expressions. We've got a, uh, another very simple study. What is the church that, that I'll link in, uh, the show notes here take you about an hour and it actually goes through the book of Acts and it looks at different episodes um, of, of the church in action so that, um, you know, people can learn, well, what was the church in those first early years? What, what was the understanding of believers and how did they live it out? So that's a simple resource um, that folks can check out if they want to, to learn how to begin starting these newer, smaller, simpler expressions of church, but that are truly church. The, um, The fourth shift that you highlight in your thread is that we need to cultivate a more comprehensive view of discipleship and evangelism. And you've already talked a little bit about evangelism, but um, say a little bit more about this fourth shift. Yeah. So when I first became a believer, I was taught that evangelism is what you did with a lost person and discipleship is what you did with someone after they were converted. And I have to admit, I don't view it that way anymore. Uh, I view it more as an overarching umbrella of discipleship and evangelism takes place somewhere in there. So here's here's another way to frame that. I think it's helpful to think about pre-conversion discipleship and post-conversion discipleship. So conversion takes place without a doubt. Evangelism takes place but it's not evangelism discipleship. It's evangelism that happens in a discipling relationship. So another way you could say that is I think when we are building a relationship with, with people and we're pointing them to the person working ways of Jesus, they are being discipled if they know it or not. So that's pre-conversion discipleship. Well, I think when we, uh, the reason that is so important is we mentioned earlier that we are living in a, in a context where people are skeptical or hostile towards the church. I think in many cases, the very first step that we have to take is we have to deconstruct caricatures that people have about the church and Christians. And the only possible way, and what I mean by that is, you know, they have a view or an understanding of what a Christian is or what the church is from media, from news reports, from things, you know, and in some cases, unfortunately, some of the, the things they believe about the church is true, but the but but they have a caricature a wrong perspective or view of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, where the only way we're going to deconstruct those caricatures is to do life with them, to actually be friends with lost people and show them what it really looks like. So Mm -hmm. I think the way we do that then is we have to understand uh, discipleship and evangelism as with a much longer runway. And uh, we have to earn the right to to share the gospel with them, to share our lives with them. And that's why I think it's freeing for most people to think about pre-conversion and post-conversion discipleship. So that's all I mean by that. It needs and it needs to be discipleship and evangelism that's very relational. It's communal. It's contextual. Um, And I think I even said in there it needs to be Jesus centric. So Mm -hmm. it, it just it really needs to be about the person of Jesus, not about our church. You know, not about, 
the culture, it, it's, it just, it needs to be Jesus focused. So that's what I mean about, about we need a more comprehensive view of discipleship and evangelism. Yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you saying that. So uh, not making it such a, a linear, sequential, uh, changing our understanding so that we're not just thinking about it in such uh, black and white stark terms like, well, I want a relationship with this person. I want to help them find Jesus, but I can't really do much unless I do evangelism first. And and we see that God doesn't work that way. So it, it makes right. sense that we need to have a, a broader view as well. I, you know, people like the Apostle Paul were clearly being shaped and formed for God's purpose for his post-conversion life, you know, long before uh, he actually came to to know and, and, and follow Jesus. Yeah. So. And I'd even say, you know, when we think about the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28, um, and some people want to push back on this, but we've made that an evangelism text. And it doesn't say anything about evangelism. It says, go and make disciples, make followers of me, you know, followers of Jesus. So I just think it's, it's just, like I say, I think it's a healthy thing to think about pre-conversion. Yes, of course, conversion takes place at some point and post-conversion. And in fact, the, the disciples, you can't pinpoint where any of them had, a, had their conversion experience. I mean, they were on a journey with Jesus and struggling, you know, with that. So I just think in a, in a very missionary context, it's helpful for us to think that way. Yeah, it's one of the ways that we've been shaped unknowingly from some of the great crusade, you know, uh, movements of the right. of the 18 and, and 1900s, people like Billy Graham and and uh, Charles Finney. Uh, and we think about that very clear moment of conversion. This fifth shift um, is that we need to use different metrics to measure success. And so I love uh, you, you put success in quotes. Um, so I think there's a few things to maybe unpack there. First of all, what is success and then how do we measure it? Yeah, I think this is enormous. This, this is probably the, so when I talk about all the different paradigm shifts that need to happen, most of the paradigm shifts are more theological or missiological. This is just practical. It's a super practical paradigm shift that if we really want to see the church move more deeply into God's mission, we we have to struggle with this. So sometimes I'll say we need to rethink scorecards. You can use the word metrics. Uh, it really comes down to what we count and measure. And I I, I say this often that we'll, we use the language of counting and measuring interchangeably, but they're different. Counting mm -hmm. is quantitative and measuring is qualitative. Well, most of the time we only count because counting is easy. So mm -hmm. and think about the way we measure success quote unquote, um, for the most part in the, in the church world is how many people show up and how much money they give. Well, that gives us zero indication of the impact that church is having on a local context. How many people show up and how much money they give you doesn't tell you if that church is having a real impact on their community. So now I'm not saying that counting, you know, money and people is, is evil or bad. It's not, but at the very least, we have to count and measure other things. So I would argue that a, a place to start is we need to start counting missionary behaviors and activities. And there's lots of beautiful and wonderful things you can count. Mm. Um, and then secondly, I would say there are some things we need to measure. So again, measuring is qualitative. So it's, it's really measuring change. Like where are we now and where do we want to be? And I think there's things we can measure both inside the church and outside the church. So inside the church, what we measure is discipleship. I mean, it's Christian maturity. And again, mm. this isn't an easy thing to do, but we can do it. And then outside, we can begin to measure what kind of impact is the church having on a local context or culture. And there's, again, this isn't easy, but we can also do this. 
Uh, so very quickly, a recommendation that I'll make sometimes to churches is identify things in your city or community that are important to you. And it could have to, it could have to do with crime or education or housing, all kinds of different living issues and get a baseline for where things are in your community today. And then start asking yourself, what would the church need to do? What Where would the church need to be involved for those numbers to be different a year from now or two years from now or five years from now? That's measuring. You're measuring mm-hmm. change from where you are today and where you are a year from now. I actually think when we think about scorecards, we need to we need to do both. We need to count certain things and we need to measure certain things. And like I said, right now, unfortunately, pretty much all we count is how many people show up and how much money they give. Yeah. And this is, this is really, I would say, uh, for some people, this may be, uh, uh, this may even create a sense of unease, but we always count and measure what we value. That's right. Um, and so in some ways, if we're not counting and measuring, then we're communicating that this isn't really that important to us. Um, a great resource that I would recommend folks check out, uh, Jim Collins wrote a book, good to great. Um, Later, he wrote what he called a monograph, um, and it's a short 30, 40 page um, booklet on good to great for the social sectors. And he talks a lot about how to measure. um, And I love that you made the distinction between measuring and counting. Typically, when you're you're measuring qualitative changes and progress, it it involves more of stories. So so there'll be a story of, hey, this week, this person that I've been um, investing in and, and reaching out to in my social network actually initiated a conversation with me about the scriptures or about faith. Okay. That's, that's something you can measure. It's not necessarily a number, um, but it's, it's a qualitative shift in the relationship that you can observe and then just be mindful for. Um, so I, I love those five shifts, um, Brad, and I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I hope we get to partner more in the future. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to let people know how they can learn more from you, engage more with your work. Like I said earlier, you've written several books. So, you know, where would you encourage people to go if they've been stirred by this conversation? What would be some next steps that they could take? Yeah, well, uh, I have a blog that I post on. It's just the the address of the blog is just missionalchurchnetwork.com. So missionalchurchnetwork.com. And there's uh, several blog posts on there. Like there's one called Rethinking Scorecards. It gives lots of examples. Uh, there's, a, there's a post on uh, recapturing the missionary nature of the church. Uh, and, and several other things. And then I think, you know, a couple of the books that I'd recommend, there's a book that a friend of mine and I wrote a couple of years ago called Next Door As It Is In Heaven. That's just a super practical helping all the people of God to engage their neighborhood. And there's a chapter in there on third places where I talk about typical third places and atypical third places and how do we engage those third places um, then also there's a, there's a free downloadable ebook. There's actually two ebooks that I've written. One's called Rethink and one's called co-vocational church planting. Those are both free downloads that you can download in, in uh, English or Spanish. But then May 1st, the Rethink ebook, I've actually revised and updated that. And it's really about these 12 paradigm shifts. So uh, May 1st, that'll be available. And again, it's if you just Google uh, Rethink ebook, it'll take you to a landing page where you can download that for free. 
Awesome. Well, that's a ton of uh, follow on uh, research that people can engage in uh, and resources that people can benefit from. So uh, I'll also again, there's going to be a lot of uh, links in the show notes, guys. So um, if you're watching on YouTube, they'll be there in the description. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, they'll be in the show notes. So that um, if something that uh, Brad shared today was especially thought provoking, we'll have some ways that you can dig a little bit deeper. Brad, thanks for coming on today and would love to do it again in the future. Sounds good, Andrew. I appreciate it.